Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back for another week of true crime and healthcare. Nurses just getting together to discuss the good and the bad of the healthcare system and the people <laughs> that are in it that make up the healthcare system. This week, I have Chelsea from a podcast called Do So Dishes Crime, and it's a true crime podcast. And so there was a couple of hiccups from some listeners contacting her that kind of made it hard for her to move forward, but she's thinking about trying to get back in it. Plus you're in school, so that makes it hard. Yes. But it's wonderful to have you back here. Chelsea and I also used to work together at the same hospital, even on the same unit at, at times. So I'm really excited because for the Good Nurse Story, we're going to get into talking about a nurse, a COVID ICU nurse from Texas and some things that he did and the people that he worked with did. And Chelsea is going to be able to relate to this directly because she works in a in an ICU that has been dedicated the COVID ICU, for lack of a better term, in that facility. So this will be, it'll be perfect. And... Guess we can get started with this bad nurse story. Wow, what a crazy story! Chelsea <laughs> texted me, and she was like, "What a story!" And I'm like, "I know you just can't make this stuff up." I say that all the time. So this is the story of Anne Plue Gates. Anne was a nurse who was born in 1949. She grew up in Louisville, Indiana, and she was very close with her parents throughout her life. She decided to to pursue a nursing career after she graduated from high school in 1977. She married a man by the name of David Plue. So David was a Vietnam War veteran, and he worked in an automobile factory. So they don't know a whole lot about their marriage because it was kind of short-lived when David was found dead on a rural Indiana road in May 1978. He had been shot twice in the back of the head. And his, became, his case just went cold because there were no witnesses. And back then they didn't have, you know, 
DNA. I do feel like there should have been something. I, I don't know. So DNA kind of started, I want to say it was around 1989 and more into the 90s that DNA evidence started to become a thing. So prior to that, they would collect stuff that could help them, but they weren't sure you know, like with, with the Golden State Killer case, they would always protect or collect and preserve the evidence in hopes that the technology would advance to be able to do DNA testing on it. But even in the early stages, it's not nearly as good as obviously what we have today. Yeah, it just seems odd that, that there, were, there were fingerprints. There was no, it seems, seems like not very many suspects. It just, nothing ever came of his murder. His widow, of course, is Anne, Anne Plew, and she was the sole beneficiary, as she would be, of his $100,000 life insurance policy. She very quickly moved herself and her parents to a city in Mississippi called Picayune, and she, once she got down there and kind of got settled in, she got remarried to a man by the name of Raymond Gates. This is in the New, or New Orleans area, which is just a short drive from the Picayune town. And he was born in Nebraska, had become an accountant for a shipping company after serving in World War II. He relocated there to New Orleans after being stationed there for his service. So they were married in December of 1978. They were There was a 26-year age difference between the two of them. Ew. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> It's whatever. Mark's four years older than me. I, I, I don't know. I guess it's just like if you fall in love with someone or who knows what her what their motives, you know, were, you know, because she had money. She got one hundred thousand dollars back then. That was, a, that was a lot of money. I mean, it's obviously a lot of money now. That was a lot of money back then. So it's not like she was hurting for money, but he did build her a house and they would entertain a lot of people there. But at some point, something really bad, of course, happens. And it's, I find it odd. I've done several of these stories where someone has a, a spouse that passes away, and then later on, another one passes away. And it's like, how common could that possibly be? I guess if they're older and have conditions, have a heart condition, have you know, something going on, I, that's one thing. But to be relatively young and to die in very suspicious circumstances. <laughs> so on the afternoon of October 7th in 1987, 911 received a distress call from the Gates residence and called and told the dispatcher that she found her husband dead inside their home. So when they get there, there's a horrific scene he was lying on the floor, severe head trauma. They were able to figure out from the wounds and the blood trajectory that the murder weapon was something long and thin. And then they look at the fireplace, and there is no fireplace poker where the where it should be. So they're thinking, hmm, this is likely the murder weapon. So the TV apparently was on really loud and there's blood splatter spattered all over the TV guide and it's open to October 3rd. But when they examined him, Raymond, they could tell he had been dead for several days. So this was really bizarre. Like they're no, going bad. Like, why would you not report your husband's death before now? Well, 
when they ask her that question, she says, oh, I haven't been here for a while. So apparently she shares her time between or among her parents' home, her husband's home, and her boyfriend's home, (laughs) who apparently was with her when she found her husband dead. So the police are going, that's a little, that's a little questionable right there. Definitely fishy. So they, she, she's like, oh, it's not a big deal. He knew about it. He was okay with it. He even had girlfriends. And so she's like, hey, I don't live here full time. I've been out of town or I've been away. I come by, go to check the mail with my boyfriend to my husband's house. And then and I find that he's been horrifically murdered. Well, they find out about Anne's previous husband and his death. And so, of, of course, they're just going to be like, well, okay. <laughs> now, Chelsea, I imagine you're, a, and I know because you love the true crime stuff too. So do you ever imagine like if you were a detective, what you'd be thinking? Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting here thinking about that right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost like if you ever handed this case, you would be, you'd be going, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm going to be able to put the, the pieces to the tree. Absolutely. Yep. Well, they were very suspicious of her boyfriend, Raymond. And they're, because of course, just because both of them are there and they don't know, you know, they don't know which one, but I guess for some reason they think they're thinking more along the lines of Raymond, but they somehow eliminate him as a suspect. And so Raymond's family is not happy at all with the way Anne is acting. She doesn't help plan the funeral and she's just acting very odd. So they tell the investigators all about this. So they start looking into her and they find out that during her first husband's murder, she had been in the hospital for an elective surgery. So they're like, well, that's obviously why they eliminated her as a suspect in her first husband's murder. However, when they talk to the investigators for the first husband's murder, they're, they're saying, well, we felt like she was lying to us the whole time. And we really always felt like she had something to do with his murder. They just couldn't prove it. I mean, they didn't find a murder weapon. And there was even, so she had a, a friend at the time for, for during her first, during that marriage with her first husband, she had a friend named Tim Conwell. He apparently reported a 38 caliber revolver as being missing, like it, someone had stolen it. Well, it just so happens that was the caliber weapon that, that was used to kill her first husband. And so he was considered a person of interest in David's murder, but no charges were ever filed against him. So there's this suspicious person, and he's going to come back to play a part a little bit later on. This is, is so bizarre. But Raymond left behind a life insurance policy that totaled $82,000. And Anne, of course, is designated as the beneficiary. He also left all of his assets and possessions to her. So they're like, okay, this is what we have. We have a woman who has a husband who was murdered, execution style, just a few years before. Someone connected to her, a friend of hers, reported a, a... gun that's the same caliber as the, the one that was used in the murder, missing. And so we have this, who and this same woman, her now husband, her current husband, is found brutally murdered, beaten to death in his home. She finds him with her current boyfriend in tow. And they're just going, 
there has to be, you know, we have to have a way to pin this on her, right? There's no way this woman is this intelligent to be able to pull all this off. And surely we're smart enough to be able to, <laughs> right? I mean, you would think. You would absolutely think, especially with the circumstances of her first husband. And then all of a sudden she up and moves as soon as she gets that money. Yeah. They got a break when the a postal service worker came forward with a statement that he had seen Anne's white Cadillac. Of course, she drove a Cadillac in the driveway. I mean, you know, she's, it just feels like she probably had this like lavish lifestyle and she just had very expensive taste. And so he's like, wait, the, the mailman is like, wait, I saw her car, very specific, very kind of flashy car that you would notice in the driveway on October 3rd. Okay, so that's the day that that apparently they, they found him, or that was the day that the TV guide was open to, right? With the blood spatter. So, so now they arrest Anne. They're like, okay, well, this is good enough. If we have the TV guide open to October 3rd with the blood spatter, that's probably the day that it happened, right? Mailman says her Cadillac was in the driveway. They arrest her on October 8th, 1987, charged her with second degree murder, and she posted bail three days later. So they're going to, she's going to trial. But before her trial was going to start in 1989, she pleaded no contest to manslaughter charges. So she had to have been thinking, they're going to convict me if I, you know. But then again, the DA had to be thinking, well, I don't know that they're going to, you know. So that's kind of when that no contest plea comes, when both sides are just not sure. And they, the evidence they seem to have against her is all circumstantial, which is a difficult case to win in the first place. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder, too, could the prosecution be thinking, well, what if the judge doesn't allow the previous her previous husband's death to come in because she wasn't convicted? And so and she had an alibi. Yeah, and it would be highly prejudicial against her. So they probably the prosecution's probably thinking they probably aren't going to let the judge's probably not going to let us use this. And you can imagine you know as a juror thinking, well, there really isn't any proof, but then in her mind, she must have been thinking they, the, it, who knows, like, if you get just the wrong person on the jury that's heard about this, they would probably be like, hey, I know this one, you know? So I just, the I think that, yeah. Could have proved her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And that's the issue. But, you know, she plead, you know, she could have gone to trial and probably would have not been convicted, but I guess she was just afraid to take that chance because it's not going to look good. You don't know what 12 people are going to do. You just don't know. And you get just the right 12 people who say, oh, it hurt she had a boyfriend. They just happened to find him. Who else would have done it? You know, I, so I could see her going, I better plea, do a plea bargain because they're not going to like me. I'm not going to be a likable you know, defendant. So she ends up pleading no contest. So basically she's saying, I'm not going to say I did it, but I will accept responsibility for it. Kind of like an Alfred plea. Yes, exactly. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, 
Y'all know the Echo technology company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Litman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Litman Core digital stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis, so now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. So during her statement to investigators, she implicated her longtime friend, Tim Conwell. So remember, Tim Conwell was the one who lost, quote, unquote, <laughs> lost his 38 caliber um, or someone stole his 38 caliber gun. And so she's like, oh, my friend Tim Conwell is the one that, that killed Raymond. Not the first husband, but this husband. So... On the morning of, yeah. Yeah, she said that she picked him up from the airport. They stayed together at a hotel. They later went to Raymond's home where he and Tim watched a televised football game together. She said that she excused herself and went to take a shower. Pardon me. I'm going to step in and take in a shower. Washroom. Step into the washroom. So... <laughs> While she was showering, she heard Tim and Raymond arguing. So by the time she exited the shower, she witnessed Tim repeatedly striking Raymond over the head with a fireplace poker. So 
her, which I think, that isn't this interesting? That's pretty good investigating by the original detectives because that's exactly what they were thinking. It's it's like, mm, look at this. Based on all of this blood spatter and whatever, this is what we think it was. And it turns out that, yes, that's exactly what it was. But she says that that Tim was the one that was hitting Raymond and Raymond was actually saying to her, I've always been good to you. Why are you doing this to me? Now, Chelsea, if someone else was hitting him and she came in like completely shocked that this was going on, what would make him say that to her? My theory. So most husband deaths are typically obviously done by a wife in a crime of passion. I'm pretty sure I've heard that statistic somewhere. Seeing as to how she is likely a manipulative, diabolic person, trash person, I should say, I just kind of wonder if in my head I could see her, A, not have really been taking a shower or disappearing for a minute knowing what was going to happen because she had to have had this planned the entire time. Kind of just coming out with a sinister look on her face and just kind of staring over him and not telling Tim to stop. And he probably would be like, you know, help me, help me. Why are you not helping me? And maybe then he kind of realized, oh, she's involved in this. Why is she doing this to me? Yeah, and I just even wonder if she didn't get in a shower at all. Like she deliberately just went there and if Tim was even involved at all, because he denies this. But I say I would say it's probably likely that she had help, you know, that she didn't kill oh, yeah. her husband with a fireplace poker by herself. I mean, I would say she had help, but it seemed like he wouldn't have said that if she hadn't been there and it hadn't been obvious to Raymond that she was in on it. I feel right. like she kind of implicated herself by just saying that that's what he was saying. Absolutely. So she did say that she disposed of the murder weapon in a nearby body of water. She said that Tim left on the next flight out of New Orleans, but he threatened her and told her to keep quiet about it. So law enforcement lured him back to New Orleans under the false pretense of testifying on Anne's behalf. So once he uh, arrived to New Orleans, he was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. So they're just like, hey, we need you to testify for her case. And here he's just flying on back. And sure, I'll do this. And come to find out, no, actually, we're going to, here's the handcuffs. We're charging you. Could they not have checked, like, the flight records for his name to prove if he had been in the town at the time of the murder? Back then? I Yeah, I don't know if they even kept a log of anything like that back then. Of course, this is before 2001. So maybe everything was a lot more lax. I don't know. Because could you just go buy a plane ticket with cash? I have no idea. So like Ann, Tim was offered a plea deal, but he said, I'm not taking a plea deal. I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm not, I'll go to trial. I am not admitting to something I didn't do. So all they had was the testimony of, of Anne. You know, that's not a lot. <laughs> Anne's no. testimony is not worth a whole lot. So their jury wasn't able to reach a decision. They had a hung jury, and he was released and permitted to return home to Indiana. And he, they never retried him. So she, this just burns me up. She filed a lawsuit to claim his Raymond's life insurance 
policy and she won. They gave her $25,000 in 1992. I do not understand that. She, I know she didn't say I did it, but she pleaded no contest. Why would you do that? And she pleaded no contest. I know that's not saying, it's not the same thing as saying I did it, but she went to prison for it. So that's, would she not come out being a convicted felon? I don't feel like if you did that in today's time that they're going to give you that money. Because if you killed your husband and you know that it is a financial motive, Mm -hmm. typically I feel like I've read for other cases, somebody else is rewarded that money and the spouse is not rewarded that money in prison. I think they don't have to, if you're, I'm pretty sure I'm totally talking off the top of my head. People love it when I do that. And they never (laughs) send me emails (laughs) telling me you're such an idiot. You should do your research. But um, I think I want to say that people who kill their kill someone trying to get the life insurance can't get it. Like they they are not awarded the the insurance company will actually do investigate, do their own investigations because they don't want to pay it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and two, what are you going to do with that? Put it on your commissary and buy a bunch of ramen noodles? Yeah. Well, she only served half of her 10-year sentence. So she actually didn't even serve that long for killing him or having him killed or whatever it was that she she did. Okay, here's the interesting thing. So she, that guy, Tim Conwell, Conwall, whatever his name is, they, of course, you know, were, they were friends back in the day when her first husband was shot. And he, you know, quote, somebody stole my 38 caliber weapon. All of a sudden, she accuses him later on of killing her second husband. He goes through a, a trial and all this stuff. And then Chelsea, they end up getting married, the two of them. This is the craziest if you can't, I mean, come on. He obviously has the self-esteem of a turtle. Yeah. Yeah, apparently. In 1997, they get married. She died from kidney failure in 2016. And the case files for the murder of Raymond Gates were actually destroyed during a hurricane in 2012. So there were no further arrests that have been made for the murder of her first husband, David Plew. And I guess, you know, with her gone, it's going to be over. Well, and two, if they did dispose of the murder weapon, they weren't able to find it. Her house, her DNA is going to be all over that house anyways. And if she's saying, hey, Tim was in this house, well, his DNA is going to be in the house. So really the only physical evidence they would have had in my mind would have been on that fire poker. And after being in the water for so long, even if they had found it, the DNA is going to degrade at that point. So I feel like their hands were kind of tied. It just seems like people are convicted on a lot less, that, that it's a lot more questionable. People in prison for marijuana. Versus people who are convicted rapists or murderers and they get out in 10 years and just get a slap on the wrist. Yep, that's exactly right. There are people serving time in the state of California where marijuana is legal for marijuana. It makes no sense. I get on soapboxes on this podcast all the time about different things. And we're going to get into talking about some stuff here in just a second, because that pretty much wraps it up for our Badner story. And we're going to get into talking about our Goodner story. 
You know, it can be really tough to transition from a student to a professional nurse. When we first started this podcast, we dedicated an entire episode to new grads because we wanted to encourage you during this difficult time of transition. Now I want to tell you about the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. Their program supports newly graduating nursing students at the early stages of their careers. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program helps first-year nurses to transition from the classroom to working in the field with confidence. It's going to also help you develop critical thinking skills through hands-on clinical experience and get support from a whole community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Plus, you're going to get access to a range of opportunities to learn from specialists in lots of different areas like ER, critical care, surgical services, just an invaluable experience for you. Not only that, HCA Healthcare's nurse residency program comes with a lot of other great benefits like tuition reimbursement, student loan assistance, 401k match, clinical instruction by subject matter experts, continual support for mentors, and more. So build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. That's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer care.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Chelsea, I think about you and your coworkers that on that unit and how hard you guys have worked. I've floated there myself uh, several times and had to work through some shifts that I know you guys were working every single time you went to work, like putting on all the PPE, being tripled, having multiple patients, feeling like it wasn't safe, having to watch people die, having to hold up the iPads for family members to be able to talk to their loved ones that couldn't be there. Having uh, just all of those things I went, I would go through occasionally getting floated and you guys were dealing with that every time you go to work. So I really, uh, for one thing, just want to say how much I appreciate you for being willing to do that for sticking it out and how much I admire you and, and your, all of the nurses and the other staff members that work on that unit and what all you guys have gone through. I'm really sorry that you've had to go through it. I'm sorry you haven't been supported more. Thank you. It's uh, definitely been an interesting time. And my patient actually died on Tuesday, had COVID. And the very close friend of this patient looked at me and said, I just don't know how you do this every day. And my only response was, I, I don't feel anything anymore. You just get to a point where you watch so many people die that unfortunately you just don't feel it and you can't. Then you just take it home with you and you can't take it home with you. You have to leave it at the hospital and be done with it. Otherwise, it, will, it almost destroyed my relationship. It almost destroyed me. You can't let it affect you. 
what you're saying, I've heard from multiple nurses who have worked on actual ICU COVID floors and regular, you know, med surge or step down floors that, that were dealing with COVID. And I've dealt with that as a travel nurse when I was working at the, the last hospital, the ICU where I was working, all the COVID patients would come there because they didn't really have a, a place for them to go. So even if they weren't technically ICU, they would come there. And so I still there saw a lot of COVID and all of the emotions and all the things. So I still know that it's nowhere near what you guys have gone through. And it's so hard. I, I know how it affected me, what I did have to deal with. And also just dealing with the the impact of the whole pandemic and the lack of staff and the lack of resources, not even on a COVID unit, just anywhere in the hospital is frustrating. It's difficult dealing with family members and patients who don't understand. They just don't get it. And they will, they'll look at you and and be so mad over something. And you're just going over, you know, how long they had to wait in the emergency room or how long they had to wait for you to bring them a drink or, you know, just, and you just want to go, I'm literally doing the best I can. I feel like my feet are going to fall off and you are doing the best you can. And they don't understand. And I know how hard it's been for me and how at times just feeling like I just wanted to give up. And I didn't even have to do all of that on an actual COVID unit. I think that I don't mean this in a negative light toward families, they were the most difficult part of COVID. In the beginning, it was obviously the death and dying. But as time has gone on and, you know, when I went to nursing school and even when I was growing up with two nurses as parents, I've heard my entire life nursing is the number one most trusted profession. And as this pandemic has happened, that has totally shifted. There's no trust in the healthcare community. And granted, we do get some patient family members that are like, you guys have done everything. We know that. We're so thankful for you. But there's been so much cussing at us and yelling at us and making physical and verbal threats where we've had to get security involved over things we don't have control of or they don't understand we can't give certain drugs or herbal supplements that aren't FDA approved. We're still a hospital held accountable for liability and the things that we do. And we have to follow laws. We have to follow policies. We have to follow data. And they don't understand that. And so they take it out on us because we're the ones at the bedside. And no matter how many times you explain to them policy and protocol, they don't trust you. And that's the worst part is you're literally doing everything you can. You're physically exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. You feel numb inside. Some days you don't get at lunch until four o'clock because you're tripled and you got three vents and, you know, they're on pressers and they're on so much medication that they're all beeping at the same time. You've got to change them all at the same time. And they've got meds given every two hours and you're just drowning and the families don't care. I honestly blame the hospital for that. I blame the hospital and the administration for that because I think they've done a very poor job of being a voice for us. They should have gotten in between us and the family members and the patients too. And have and they should have been there to stand in front of us and say, hey, here's the deal. We're in a pandemic. 
things are not, please don't expect this hospital to run the way it has run in the past. Whatever happened before, that is out the window. Everything is different now. We are fortunate to have the staff that we have here, no matter who it is. If it's the people who are, who are coming around to clean the floors and keep this place you know, clean and empty the garbage and the environmental services people, if it's the people coming around to draw blood, if it's the CNAs helping with bathing patients and taking vitals and doing all that they do, if it's the nurses, the doctors, we are fortunate to have every single one of them and you will treat them with respect and you will talk to them with respect and you will not be threatening them. And you, But no, there was none of that. There never was any of that. It's always just like customer service still through a pandemic. It's like, well, you've got to be, you've got to be, try to just, if they're, if they get upset, just say, be nice. And I'm sorry, it took so long. I'm here now. That's always the answer. You're not allowed to say, I'm sorry, we're short staffed. You're not allowed to say that. And they're not going to say that. I said it countless times. I'm sorry. I have three patients and they're all critically ill. Or I'm sorry. I was just doing CPR on somebody. And I've said that to a patient before who have walked into a room and they've berated me over a cup of ice or, you know, I'm cold. Something so small when I was doing CPR on somebody next door. And I've been, I've said that before. Hey, I'm sorry, but I was just doing CPR on somebody. And, you know, I would, I've came as quick as I can. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to why and make I, I don't know I'm gonna be honest I'm an honest person and that may be a fault of mine but it's not I'm not gonna let somebody treat me like crap because I can't help the situation I don't think it's a fault of yours Chelsea it's if anything it's gonna make the patient and the family member understand what's going on and it will help them with their attitude I think if the hospital had been willing from the get-go to get out ahead of this and sort of prepare the, the patient, the family, then they wouldn't have been so upset when the trays come around an hour late, like, you know, breakfast trays come around after nine o'clock or lunch trays come around after one. And they're just like, where is lunch? Or, and when they do get it, it's cold and just, or something's missing, or I ordered this and I got that, or I hit my button you know, 20 minutes ago, and nobody's been in here, and I need to go to the bathroom. Those are all legitimate complaints. But if you kind of got out ahead of that, and were able to, someone kind of said out front, like, please bear with us. I promise you, if we didn't, if you hit your button, and we didn't get in here in 20 minutes, we're not just twiddling our thumbs at the nurse's station. If you can explain that, don't you? I mean, I know how I would just be like, my gosh, just like you said, that patient was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have even said anything. I'll you know. But if you already know that ahead of time, you're not going to say anything. You're going to be like, Oh my gosh, I know this. And I never want a patient to feel like they can't call out, but just understand that like if I don't come there immediately, like you said, I'm not just horsing around. I'm busy doing something, and I'll get to you as soon as I can, or somebody else will help out and come get to you. But I mean, there, I mean, was a day. You know, you have code after code after code after code, or somebody's coding at the same time as somebody else. And the resources you need for one code are now having to be split to another code. I mean, it's just, and the majority of our patients are very understanding and their families can be very understanding. And when you tell them, like, I'm sorry, I was busy in another room or I was helping somebody else because how many of our patients were prone? And, you know, that takes five or six nurses to flip somebody. And we live in East Tennessee. Some patients are a little bigger than others. 
And it takes more resources for us to make sure that we're not only doing it safely for the patients, but that we're doing it safely for us. And that takes resources off the entire floor. And so when you've got half of your floor of a 24 to 26 bed unit needing to be flipped on their back or needing to be flipped on their stomach, sometimes at the same time, our resources are tied up for a while and we do the absolute best we can. Something great about my unit is I work with great people. I have a great manager. We've got awesome support staff. Our physicians are great. They were stepping in and helping us prone and supine people. You know, even our attendings were like, what can we do for you? Our nurse practitioners were, what can we do for you, the residents? So we've had all of our resources being used and people still trying to, you know, help and family members even, hey, can, you know, I'll clean my family member up if I can. Like, but it's still, you're always not, you're not ever going to be able to please everyone. But I think being honest with people is going to help shed a lot that, hey, like we're not ignoring you. We're not neglecting you, but, you know, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, I've started saying that to people because we're not out of this. I mean, it's not we are not out of this. Yeah, things are much better in terms of COVID. But as far as the staffing ratios, they haven't gotten any better. I mean, not, not where I'm concerned and that where I'm working, we're still dealing with the same issues of staffing and not having enough nurses and not having enough um, other staff members. So it's, yeah, COVID numbers are down, but the situation of the hospital has not improved. And it's going to take a long time for that to recover, I think. Yeah. Well, there was one nurse in Amarillo, Texas, Solomon Barraza. This is an, an article from the New York Times. And this nurse, same, like I could totally see this nurse being implanted right into the unit where you work, everything that you just described, because he was a charge nurse there in the intensive care. They dealt with primarily COVID patients, most of them intubated, and didn't have enough nursing staff to give adequate care, safe care. So on Mother's Day in 2020, Baratza made the decision to call for safe harbor. So Texas is a safe harbor state. The state of Tennessee, where I live, is not. You and I live. I don't know of other states that have this, but but Texas has this law that says that a nurse who feels like they're handed an unsafe assignment can say, I am calling Safe Harbor and I want my form and I'm going to fill it out. Basically, what you're saying is I'm invoking this to protect my license and I'm, I'm acknowledging that this is an unsafe assignment that you're giving me. And so that's what he did. And I, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but this is a hard thing to do, even if we had it in the state. Do you think a lot of nurses would use it? Why? But why? Is it, are we doing it to ourselves? Do you think there would be pressure for administration? I think it would be pressure from administration. I think that nurses could be looked at as troublemakers. I think that there is such a, I don't want to say negative connotation on nurses, but we are dispensable. And I just don't think it would be looked at. Like, I think that our other nurses would be supportive of if you were to be like, hey, I think I'm going to do this. I think they'd be like, yeah, do it. And I will say like our manager is very big on our safety. But yeah, I, I don't think in Tennessee that you would see a lot of it. I think that nurses would be too afraid to stand up and do it for themselves with fear of retaliation. And I doubt this was the first time that this nurse had been met with the situation that he felt unsafe. So 
I'm sure it wasn't easy for him to make this decision, but there were other nurses that stepped up and did it also. And I feel like his courage to do that helped other nurses. And I think that's probably what would happen if we were able, you know, if we had something like this in place, if we were able to say, I'm standing my ground, this is not safe. I want the form. I need to fill this out. And I feel like this needs to be something federal that comes from the federal government that protects all nurses in all states. Don't you? Yes, absolutely. Because I, you know, my brother is a physician. He's a wonderful physician, but he has even admitted that nurses are held to a much higher standard when it comes to our licenses than they are. Like, obviously, we're responsible for very different things, but if a physician gets in trouble for, say, a physician got caught diverting drugs or something of that sort, it's going to be a hush-hush, sweep-under-the-rug kind of thing versus if a nurse, you may be the one that they make an example out of. And you may not get a second chance and your license is going to forever have a mark on it that, you know, you were caught diverting drugs. You were looked at by the state. We're just held to such a different standard in regard to our law. Yes. I think about the nurse in Nashville who is facing a jury trial here in just a few weeks. When we're recording this, it's March the 10th. Her jury trial is set for March 21st. So we're talking about 11 days from now. She's going to be going to a criminal courtroom. She will be sitting there with her defense attorney and a prosecutor that is going to be talking to 12 people who are not medical necessarily. They'll pick these 12 people and I guarantee you the prosecutor's gonna, are not gonna want nurses on there, I would imagine, or anyone medical. So you're, you've got 12 people who are not a, really a jury of her peers because they can't really understand what she goes through. And so that prosecutor is going to be sitting there trying to convince them that this medication error that she made was reckless and that she deserves to be a convicted felon of reckless homicide and put on placed on a registry for people who abuse elder elderly people and for the rest of her life. And this is something that I've been talking about a lot on social media. I'm trying to bring a lot of awareness for Redonda. I will be at her trial. I'm trying to encourage as many people who can to go to her trial, to be there to support her. And I will be there to support her every step of the way. She's been on the podcast. She came came on the podcast. And I tried to outline exactly what happened. But for those of you that don't know, basically what happened Redonda was working as a float nurse, kind of a help-all nurse, and another nurse asked her to go down to the radiology department, take some medication that would go into her patient's IV to help sedate her so that she could get a PET scan. And Redonda went and pulled this medication, which was supposed to be midazolam. Versed is the brand name of it. She went to pull it out. She typed in VE, Vecaronium, a paralytic paralyzing agent that's used for intubating patients. It literally paralyzes your muscles. She pulled that out. I would imagine thinking that it was maybe the generic version of Versed because that happens. Or you might not know the generic, like what's the generic of that, you know, when you're looking it up. So she pulled it out. She went down. She gave it to the patient and then went on because, of course, she had something else she was asked to do. And when she gave the the medication to the patient, it did paralyze her muscles. She unfortunately wasn't able to breathe she went into cardiac arrest she was intubated and they had to take her off the ventilator a day later and she died and it was a horrible tragedy and it's something that I can't stand when I think about it here's my thoughts 
if you are not medical, you have not been in our shoes. And when I say medical, I mean a nurse. If you have not been a nurse getting absolutely drugged through the mud, dragged through the mud, whatever the term is, in rough conditions, your opinion on how good I do my job is completely irrelevant because you have no idea what it is like to be in a hospital and have constant emergencies and sick, sick patients. And, you know, sometimes your mind just, you're doing so many things at once. I, you just, it's not maybe firing on all cylinders. I don't know where I'm trying to go with that, but your opinion is irrelevant. Mistakes happen in every job. I am not going to go to an accountant's office and tell him he doesn't know what he's doing and he has no, his mistake is costly and I know it because of X, Y, and Z. I don't know it. I'm not an accountant. I have nothing to do with that job and I'm not going to sit here and act like I do. Just like you as an accountant cannot come into my hospital, into my job and tell me that what I am doing is wrong. She made a mistake. It was a costly mistake, and she will live with that for the rest of her life. But if you think that putting her in a prison cell is going to be worse than the mental damage that she's already incurred from her mistake and owning up to her mistake, you're wrong. She's already putting herself enough. She has said that, that every day, there isn't a day that goes by that she doesn't think about it, that she's not tortured over what happened, the thoughts of how this woman you know, her last moments before she became unresponsive. It's, it is, it's unimaginable. And to to think about that, it's really hard. I make myself think about it. I make myself face it because I don't ever want anything like that to, ha- to happen to one of my patients. I never want to be that nurse that, that makes that mistake. But I have to accept the fact that I, because of what I've chosen as my career, that is a possibility that I could make a mistake that leads to someone's death or at the very least bodily harm. I have the potential to do that just from being human as hard as I try not to make mistakes. And that's what I don't understand about this. If people want to sparse the whole thing and they, they want to put it under a microscope and say, wait, how did she not see the alert? How did she not know that you reconstitute, you don't reconstitute Versed and it's two different things and they want to, break down her the medication error to decide whether or not she should have made the medication error that isn't the point the point is she made one and any of us could make a mistake maybe not that one maybe you think you wouldn't make that mistake but any one of us at any time could make a fatal mistake a fatal error that does end up killing a patient and if it happens you may look at your mistake and say wow I would have never thought I could have done that. I can't believe I did that. Of course, you probably would say that. You'd probably say, I can't believe I did that. I know what I was thinking. Have you ever said that to yourself? I don't know what I was thinking. Have you ever said that to yourself, Chelsea? Absolutely. And another thing that comes to my mind too is I would like to ask every single person that feels so strongly that she deserves to go to jail, how many of you have gotten behind the wheel of a car after having alcoholic beverages? Because you knowingly did that. But the second that you get in trouble for it, the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth is, oh my God, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. I would have never done that. That's how you would feel and imagine how she feels. 
She didn't go into nursing with the intent to hurt somebody. Nobody goes into nursing for money. You go into it because your heart is too big and you like helping people. Well, and I would even say that someone who who drinks and then chooses to get behind the wheel of a car, that is a, you are knowingly doing something that is illegal. You're doing that deliberately. You are choosing to drive a vehicle and put someone else's life in, in danger. She was just doing her job and made uh, mistakes along the way. And You're, mind you, was working in a system that was full of holes that allowed those mistakes to take place. I mean, I know in our Omnimed, you pull VEC, it says big, bold, bright yellow letters, paralyzing agent. When I pull Versed, it does not say that. And, you know, back to the, the drinking and driving, those people intentionally do something, but they're still going to defend themselves of, oh, I didn't mean to. It was an accident. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to. You think she meant to? You think that she meant to pull vecuronium and paralyze a patient and kill him? Your your opinion is irrelevant. I'm sorry, but it's it holds no value to me at all. I unfortunately have been talking to a lot of nurses on social media who have come back at me for defending Redonda, and it's hard for me to understand how nurses who have worked at the bedside who know what it's like can focus in on the mistake that she made and parsing that, you know, looking at that under a microscope to decide whether or not they would have made that mistake and then saying, I wouldn't have, therefore she deserves. Instead of looking at the fact that this district attorney thought it was appropriate to charge a nurse criminally for a med error. And if you could make any mistake that could lead to a patient's death, that any prosecutor could decide to come after you for that mistake. And you may be sitting there going, yeah, but I didn't do that on purpose. I did I did all the safety measures. I always double and triple check. I don't know how this happened, but they could be going, well, no, you should have quadruple checked. You should have done this. You should have done that. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. And then now you're in the hot seat because of a mistake. They made an example out of her, which gives them the ability to make an example out of you. It's going to set a precedent. It already kind of has because... They brought charges against her. Who would have thought that would have ever even been possible? Look at what she's, even if she's found innocent, look at what she's had to go through for three years. And people will know her name and they'll know what happened. And, you know, it's like I told you earlier, when I was in nursing school, I had no nursing experience. I was a tech on the floor to a textbook. I didn't have real nursing experience. And I felt the same way as everybody else. Like, how could she do that? Like, blah, blah, blah. And it took our mutual friend that I worked with And, you know, listening to your podcast to really be like, oh, now wait a minute and getting experience in a unit and seeing how easily it is to make a mistake. I mean, I've almost made med errors before and it's on little teeny tiny things, but then you go back and look at it and, you know, thankfully I'm very compliant with my scanning of my meds. But I mean, how easy is it when you've got personal bins of antibiotics and stuff to accidentally pull out of the wrong one, you go to scan it and it's like, oh, oops, I grabbed somebody else's antibiotic. It's easy to do that. And it took, you know, getting that experience to be like, you know what? That's bull crap. Nobody would do that on purpose, except for maybe that one serial killer that you and I did an episode on. Well, and there's there are people out there who deliberately hurt people, but this is not that situation. One of the my managers, one of my former managers, told me a story where... She had hooked up a cardizem drip, which is a drip that is an antiarrhythmic. It helps keep your heart rate, helps to lower your heart rate and keep, you know, keep it in a 
I don't know. It helps you lower your heart rate. Let's just, it's a calcium channel blocker, but it's given to patients who go or in like AFib with RVR. And so she had that hanging and then she hung a antibiotic that was supposed to be run at like a hundred an hour over 30 minutes or something like that or whatever. It was going in a hundred an hour. And so she hung the antibiotic, but when she, she programmed the diltiazem as if it was the antibiotic. Oh, no. So she bolused 100 uh, mLs of diltiazem into the patient over a, the period of an hour. And this is something that drips in and at like 10, 15. Yeah, I mean, it's like 25 milligrams. Geez. So, which I don't know what that equals to in mLs because I don't think it's one to one. No, but it's still like what you said, only like 10, 15. It's very slow. It's slow. It's very, it's, it goes in slowly. So... She bolused in 100 cc's. Oh, I, I want to say, though, she told me it was 30 minutes, though, that, that she bolused it in over 30 minutes. I couldn't remember exactly, but I remember going, what? I'm being so shocked. And then the patient was fine. The patient was not harmed, but could have been, really could have been. And not only that, what if it had been heparin? What if it had been a vasopressor? What if you're thinking you were giving somebody a 500 cc bolus of normal saline because their blood pressure was a little low and they happen to be on heparin drip and you are talking to somebody a heparin drip is a 500 cc bag of fluid they look pretty similar and you're just sitting there programming and you program the heparin and it goes in you when you bolus somebody it goes in fast really mm-hmm. fast 500 goes in at 30 minutes over a 30 minute period of time you give them a, a 500 cc's of heparin over a 30 minute period and they will die absolutely you a vasopressor, they're going to have a stroke. They may die, you know? I mean, and it's so easy when you're, you're hanging three or four different things. You have to pay attention and you can't be distracted because it is so easy for somebody to pop in and be like, hey, do you think you could help me, you know, next door? Or the family have a question and you're trying to multitask and answer that question or, be, you know, help your coworker. And the next thing you know, the thing that you were doing, you're doing something else. And you can make a mistake. You're standing there pushing the buttons on the, the pump to program it. And someone is right beside you in your ear trying to talk to you. I can't tell you how many times I've done this. I do it every time. And I'm sitting there pushing the buttons. And they start talking. And I say, hold on a minute. I'm programming a pump. I never talk to anybody while I'm doing this. I have to focus. And it, that's my always my response. I just don't. I don't even look at them. I never look away. I just do what I'm doing. And as soon as I'm finished, I always turn back to them and say, I'm really sorry. That's what I have. That's a habit that I've gotten myself into. And I refuse to break it because I feel like it's safer for my patient. It's safer for me. It's just something I always do. I don't care what I'm programming. It's just a habit I get I've gotten myself into. The thing is, though, I'm not perfect. And there there could be a time when who knows, as you were saying, emergent things happen. Oh, my goodness, the things that go on in intensive care units when a patient's coding and a million people are in there and you're just very quickly trying to do something and you, you can't do your habits at that point. And I've made a med error before. It was one time and it was with an antibiotic. No harm went to the patient, thankfully. But I immediately went to my team leader and I was like, I've made a mistake and I need to talk to you about it. I filled out an SI report on myself. The patient was fine. But still, like, I knew like in my gut, I was like, oh, no. Because I was talking to a family member, I was distracted, my med wouldn't scan, so I just clicked it off because some medications won't scan for some reason, and I was like, this, I was tripled, 
I had a transport waiting to take my other patient down to MRI. I was flustered and I was like, why is this not working? You know, I'm frustrated. So I just clicked it off, hung my antibiotic and went on about my day, came back and noticed when I was getting ready to tear it down. Oh my gosh, that's not the right drug that I was supposed to give. Mm hmm. I went right to my team. And you were honest about that because you know that in a just culture, it is the safest thing for everybody concerned for you to be honest about that and admit what you did so that measures can be put in place for it not to happen again, that other people can learn from it, that the system can learn from it, that people who run the hospital can look at and go, how did she do this? Can we, is there anything we can do to keep this from happening again? And that's what a just culture is. If you don't have that if you're worried, oh, I could be convicted of, I could be arrested. I could be uh, charged with reckless homicide because I chose to override that and do that when I quote, should know better, according to Lippincott, then maybe you wouldn't. I could have very easily tore that down and tossed it in the trash, took the name off of it. Nobody ever would have known. Yeah. Just like, well, there's no, I can't take it back. Can't take it out of them now. So I'm not going to risk my freedom. Redonda will tell you that, interestingly enough, that she does not want this to cause that to happen. She says she really hopes that because for this, obviously for the safety of the public, that will not happen. And I, I know that I, if I ever get to a point in my career that I feel like I can't safely admit when I've made a mistake, I will leave. I will not do it. If, if I can't maintain my integrity, I'm not doing this anymore. I have a horrible conscience and I've always been somebody that you've got to own up to your mistakes because there's no way to rectify it if you don't own up to it. And, you know, if your patient, if, you know, if my patient had a reaction to that antibiotic and I would notice it, you know, I can immediately go to the physician and be like, listen, I've made a mistake. I administer, and I did tell the physician I administered the wrong antibiotic. I just want you to know the patient is fine. There seems to be no you know, apparent reaction. It's not on their allergy list, blah, blah, blah. But if you own up to it and say she were having it, okay, great. How can we fix it? Go to pharmacy, you know, other than Benadryl, is there something better that I could give this patient to counteract, you know, this reaction? If you, you don't own up to it and you just let it happen, you're like, oh, I don't know what happened. We're too smart these days for that to happen. You can't lie your way out of it. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and recording another episode with me. I really appreciate it. It's been a great episode. I think we've had some good conversation. And hopefully, I mean, here in a couple of weeks, this case is going to be have some sort of a resolution. I don't know. I'm going to keep talking about it. I, I'm trying to educate people about not only what happened, but why we should be so worried as nurses and healthcare professionals. We should really be very afraid of this precedent. Mm -hmm. We should be. Thank you for having me. And I will be praying for Redonda and her freedom. And you guys know you can find me on social media at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. We're on TikTok. We've started doing TikTok. And not so much on Twitter. We are on Twitter, but we just don't get on there a whole lot. We're, we're trying. But. And you also can email me at Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com. Love to hear from you guys. And also, of course, want to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.